Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your demon in a mirror, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. Call to action, leave a rating on iTunes, or email me at blankisthekiller at gmail.com. That was annoying. In this episode, I'll be covering Sexy Death, Bloody Red Rum, and Demon Mirrors. Let's huff some steam together and talk about some moving pictures while our eyes glow. Number 1, Deep Murder, 2018, directed by Nick Coriasi. During a softcore porno in a mansion, a man named Doug is found stabbed to death. Babs, her husband Richard, her son Hugh, his best friend Jace, a babysitter, a scientist named Dr. Bunny, and Detective Cross are all in the mansion and anyone could be the killer. Babs is killed, followed by Jace, Richard, and the babysitter. Hugh realizes that Doug can hold his breath for a really long time and never actually died. Doug fights with Hugh, Dr. Bunny, and Detective Cross. Hugh kills Doug and Detective Cross succumbs to a fatal wound inflicted by Doug. Hugh and Dr. Bunny then don't hook up. Doug is the killer. There are some notable faces in Deep Murder, so I was surprised that I hadn't heard of it until it popped up on Shudder. Katie Asselton of the League fame plays Babs. Jerry O'Connell, who I'm not a huge fan of, plays Doug. And Christopher McDonald plays Richard. If you've ever seen a pop star Never Stop Never Stopping, the guy who plays Hunter the Hungry, the Tyler the Creator knockoff, is also in this. His name is Chris Redd and he plays Jace. The funniest characters in the entire movie are probably Jace and Hugh. If I had to give the overall funny person crown to someone, it would be Jace. That's kind of a problem. You see, Deep Murder is one of the funniest comedies I've seen in recent years, up until Jace dies. After his passing, things start to drag and the jokes that elicit an audible laugh are few and far between after the hilarious football star quarterback Jace dies. Before Jace's demise, I was laughing out loud around once every 10 minutes at least. I rarely laugh out loud at all, so this is huge praise for how funny parts of Deep Murder are. I haven't really explained anything about the movie yet. Deep Murder is basically your classic whodunit slasher formula. The twist is all the characters act like they are in a terrible softcore porno the entire time. Almost everyone's comedic bad acting is incredible. The only character that never really seemed to hit the right amount of hammy delivery was the babysitter who was played by Jessica Parker Kennedy. I remember her character's lines not being nearly as funny as the rest of the cast, so it's not completely her fault. 
I guess with what she was given, she did all right. Jace is the meathead jock best friend. Detective Cross is incredibly incompetent. Richard is constantly on the phone trying to close big deals. Babs makes everything awkward by always bringing up different character relations. Hugh is the nerdy virgin. Dr. Bunny is the scientist who's smart, but not really. And the babysitter is basically just the hot one. In short, the zany characters and their bad on purpose delivery are for the most part amazing. There is surprisingly decent gore in Deep Murder. I really thought they'd skimp on the practical effects since they aren't really necessary for the comedic elements, but the stab and slash wounds and head destructions all looked fantastic. When Babs has what appears to be a dildo statue shoved through the back of her head until it sticks out through her mouth, I was in shock. I did not expect that level of gore in this goofy softcore porno horror comedy. Speaking of this being a softcore porno parody, there's only one shot of actual nudity in this movie, and I'm not going to spoil it. The sex scenes that are in the movie, well, sex scene, I only think there was one, is hilarious, perfectly acted for its comedic purpose, and doesn't include any nudity. If you are intrigued by anything I said about Deep Murder, check out the trailer. Watch a little bit of that, and if you like the comedy it showcases, you'll dig the movie. Up until Jace dies, at least. I'd say the beginning of Deep Murder makes checking out the whole movie worth it, even though it does peter out towards the end. Number 2, Satanic Panic, 2019, directed by Chelsea Stardust. A girl named Sam, who just started a new job delivering pizzas, makes a delivery to a fancy part of town. After not receiving a tip for the order, Sam enters the house to ask for one since she needs money for gas. A satanic gathering is going on and they need a virgin for a ritual since the leader's daughter is no longer a virgin. The satanists easily deduce that Sam is a virgin and capture her. Sam escapes and saves Judy, the satanist leader's daughter, from two other satanist kids who end up dying. The girls are eventually captured and a ritual to summon Baphomet begins. Sam becomes pregnant with Baphomet's baby and Judy is killed by her mother. Assault Circle was disrupted a little earlier when the Satanist leader killed another member that was going against them. Since the circle has an opening, a demon named Samaziel is able to interrupt the ritual and start killing all the Satanists. Samaziel lets Sam, who is back to normal and no longer pregnant, go. The Satanists and Samaziel are the killers. Samaziel wasn't killing to save Sam. Samaziel started killing for fun. There's a new red flag when it comes to horror movies. If a horror movie includes main characters that are pizza delivery people, chances are the movie is going to be flat booty. Hank Hill ass, if you will. By that I mean terrible. This trend of painfully mediocre pizza delivery horror movies was started by Slice and has hopefully been ended by Satanic Panic. I will say this, I enjoyed Satanic Panic more than Slice, just barely though. Chelsea Stardust is a decent director. She directed the most put together Hulu Into the Dark movie, All That We Destroy. I've liked some of her shorts she's directed also, like Slape Review. I don't blame Chelsea for the incredible failure that is Satanic Panic. I place the blame on the writers 
Ted Geogegan, and Grady Hendrix. You know what's one of the saddest things in the world? A horror comedy that completely fails at comedy. A lot of the attempted humor in Satanic Panic comes from the overly written dialogue that's impossible for any actor to present in a humorous manner. The dialogue is so bad and inhuman that almost every attempt to elicit a laugh with kooky dialogue just made me groan. I think throughout the entire movie there were only two quips that I thought were mildly humorous. I can't even fault the actors for their performances, seeing as the writing is so atrocious that there's really nothing they could have done. They got the girl from Happy Death Day. Jessica Roth? Oops. No, they got the girl that played her roommate. To be fair, I don't even think Jessica Roth could have saved this ship from sinking. Sam the Virgin is played by a new actor named Haley Griffith. If they were going to get some new actor to play the character, why didn't they get a believable virgin? I'm supposed to believe that this super attractive non-Jesus freak is supposed to be a virgin. There are plenty of plain looking actors looking for roles. Actors that are normally cast in uggo roles would also love to play the main character in a horror movie. I think a believable looking virgin with some natural comedic talent might have saved this movie. Well, not saved, but at least made the movie a little more entertaining. Haley Griffith isn't awful in Satanic Panic, but since this movie is, a natural comedic powerhouse was necessary for any shot at success for this horror comedy. Does Satanic Panic do anything right? The gore's decent and practical. Jerry O'Connell pops up for two seconds in this movie before shooting himself in the neck on accident. That part was kind of funny. The blood spurting from the wound looked great. The lead Satanist shoves her arm into the gunshot wound and pulls out a gross thing that appears to be a deformed heart. The weird organ is then literally baked in the oven until it turns into a disgusting little monster head crab thing which looked incredible. Kudos where kudos are due. Little creature thing and gore in the movie worked. Other instances of gore. A girl wearing a giant drill strap-on device accidentally makes a new hole in her sister's torso. The effects for this whole thing are solid. The lead Satanist casts a spell on the mutineer, which makes them drown. The mutineer spitting up water and having it go out of their eyes and whatnot looked great. The Satanist casts a spell on Judy, which makes needles protrude from her fingertips and right below her eyes, which looked amazing. The lead Satanist also gets her head chopped off with a big-ass sword, which doesn't look nearly as realistic and great as the other effects, but is still a fun decapitation. So gore and some creature practical effects kept this movie from being the worst thing ever. A tree monster and Baphomet did look terrible though. Your whole plot is centered around summoning Baphomet. Y'all didn't think it was important to spend any time on the Baphomet design? Baphomet looks like some idiot in a crappy gorilla suit with a few goatee alterations. After seeing all the other well-executed gore and oven creature, Baphomet was crazy disappointing. A bad score that's overbearing paired with some of the worst written dialogue I have ever heard killed any chance of me recommending Satanic Panic. Don't be surprised if you see this pop up in the rotten section of the pumpkin harvest next year. I should have known this movie would be awful when even the horror critics that like everything were saying it was just okay.
Number three, The Shining, 1980, directed by Stanley Kubrick. A man named Jack Torrance takes a winter caretaker job at the Overlook Hotel. He brings his wife Wendy and son Danny for the five-month isolated gig. Jack's hoping he'll be able to focus on his writing. Before leaving the hotel, the head chef talks to Danny about a special ability they both share called The Shining that allows them to know and see things. Time passes and Jack becomes more and more unhinged. Jack starts seeing people. An old caretaker named Grady who killed his family and then himself tells Jack he needs to protect the hotel. The head chef senses things aren't going well and makes his way to the hotel. Jack starts trying to kill Wendy and Danny with an axe. The chef shows up and Jack kills him. Jack follows Danny into a hedge maze. Danny finds his way out of the maze. Wendy and Danny leave the Overlook Hotel. Jack Torrance freezes to death in the maze. Jack Torrance is the killer. First off, yes, I've never sat down and watched the entirety of The Shining until now. I knew everything that was going to happen already from the bits and pieces I've seen over the years, but I'm glad I finally did a full viewing. I vividly remember watching some of the movie with my parents in the downstairs living room when I was young. When the bathtub scene started, they said I had to leave. Being an adolescent boy, I ran upstairs as quickly as possible to another TV to try and catch more of the naked lady, which ended in my poor young eyes being rudely assaulted by the gross walking corpse grandma. Ugh. Secondly, I'm not sure if Jack Nicholson's performance is amazing or awful. Right off the bat, Nicholson portrays Jack as an unhinged lunatic. Even during the interview, Nicholson's acting is over the top. He gave me strong Jim Carrey vibes due to the expressiveness of his face in The Shining. I know he came before Jim Carrey, but you know what I mean. Did I enjoy Nicholson's performance? Of course. It's a captivating performance. It just feels overly comedic at times. The Shining isn't about a sane man that goes crazy in a supernatural hotel. The Shining is about a nut that cracks even more. One thing that I found weird in the movie is the relationship between Jack and his family. From the get-go, Jack seems to have nothing but disdain for both Wendy and Danny. It stated early on that Jack drunkenly hurt Danny, which caused him to stop drinking. Jack isn't a perfect angel. Thing is, I never felt like he cared about Wendy or Danny. On the car ride up, it's obvious that Wendy is already scared of her husband. At one point, Jack says he'd do anything for Danny, but I don't believe him in the slightest, given all of his actions in the movie. I would have liked to see a loving family slowly turn on each other instead of watching an abusive, scary husband finally decide it's time to escalate to murder. Now I do think the idea of a wife who's terrified of her husband accompanying the spouse to an isolated area where no one else will be with them for months is interesting. It probably is the better approach, but I would like to see this same take on The Shining with a more sympathetic Jack that cares about his family even though he's been awful and hurt them in the past. Besides the underdeveloped family relationship, how's the rest of the movie? Spectacular. The sound design is incredible, the hotel is silent and haunting, while the score is an unsettling orchestral cacophony. The score is basically anxiety in music form. 
The sound design and the sheer size and detail of the hotel perfectly come together to create the flawless atmosphere of isolation. The Overlook Hotel is gorgeous, the production design is simply jaw-dropping, and makes the Overlook Hotel into a character itself. The few bits of gore that are shown are practical and well done. Who doesn't love gallons upon gallons of blood pouring out of elevators? Besides Nicholson, how's the rest of the acting? Shelley Duvall is solid, barring a very strange arm wave she decides to do while running around the hotel terrified. That looked like a goofy run animation pulled out of a video game. It's awful that Kubrick tortured the performance out of her. Kubrick sounds like a real jerk face McGee. In my opinion, there's no reason to make your actors do ridiculous amounts of takes other than wanting to abuse your power and waste time. Sure, multiple takes are important, but it sounds like Stanley had a reputation for taking things too far and being a tyrant. I'm not a fan of the whiplash approach to getting the best out of someone. You can say the ends justify the means, but I think a more nurturing director can also pull the best performances out of their actors. What's weird is it sounded like Kubrick was really nice to Danny Lloyd, who played Danny. I guess Kubrick wasn't completely heartless. Danny Lloyd's performance is fine. For the most part, I'm a big fan of the slow, methodical pace of The Shining. It really helps elevate the Torrance's isolation. A few times I felt things were a little slow, but overall I enjoyed the creeping, deliberate pacing. The Shining has a reputation of being one of the greatest horror movies of all time. I wasn't as blown away as I thought I would be, probably due to hyping it up to unrealistic levels, but The Shining is no doubt an amazing film. It's been talked about to death, so I'm not going to ramble on about it further. If you haven't ever sat down and watched The Shining in its entirety, I heavily recommend that you do. Be prepared for its runtime, though. It's a long one. I have to bring up one more thing that bothered me. The head chef who goes to check on the Torrance family because he's got a bad feeling doesn't bring a weapon with him or anything. The whole reason he makes the trek to the hotel is that he thinks Jack might be getting a little loopy and dangerous. Why would you not bring a gun or something? I get him not being ready for surprise Jack axe attack, but I don't get the chef arriving empty handed. These people with precognition abilities sure are blind. Let's see what Danny's been up to since his dear old dad turned into a popsicle in that hedge maze. Number 4, Dr. Sleep, 2019, directed by Mike Flanagan. A grown-up Danny Torrance is shown to be an angry alcoholic like his father. Danny goes to a new town and starts to better himself with the help of a guy named Billy. A group called the True Knot, who all have shining abilities, who are led by Rose the Hat, are searching for more people that can shine. They need to consume steam they get from hurting and killing kids who can shine, in order to stay alive, and the group is running low on steam. A girl named Abra has immense shine power. She starts communicating with Danny and sees the True Knot murder a kid. The True Knot want to capture Abra. Abra, Danny, and Billy work together to stop the True Knot by setting a trap for them. A bunch of True Knot members are killed. 
but so are Billy and Abra's dad. Abra's captured by one of the members, but quickly saved by Danny. After all this, the only remaining member of the True Knot is Rose the Hat. Danny and Abra lure Rose to the Overlook Hotel. Danny, who's been locking the Overlook ghosts in his mind over the years, releases the ghosts. The ghosts consume Rose and possess Danny. Danny burns down the Overlook Hotel with himself inside. Abra makes it out and is still able to talk to Danny. The True Knot and drugs are the killers. Danny could maybe be considered a killer since he hooks up with a girl, wakes up to see that she's thrown up and possibly OD'd, and just bails on her without even seeing if she's alive. I don't know if she was already dead from ODing at that point or not. Not only does he bail on her, there is also a kid that he leaves alone with the possibly dead mom who ends up starving. Danny reveals he used to see flies around a person who was about to die's face, but we, the audience, don't know if he saw flies around the one night stand mom and her son. So much stuff happens in Dr. Sleep that I didn't cover in that summary. It's a two and a half hour movie that's jam-packed with interesting world building. Dr. Sleep is an entertaining movie. My least favorite part of the entire film is when our characters end up in the Overlook Hotel. The Overlook feels forced. Having all, well, not all, but most of the Overlook ghosts randomly be unleashed to munch on Rose the Hat was dumb. They didn't even bring out the dog bear man. Here's how Dr. Sleep should have ended. Danny and Abra go to the Overlook Hotel. Danny finds the old fire axe. Danny then hides in the same spot his dad hid in to kill head chef Dick in the first movie. Rose the Hat struts into the hotel and Danny pops out and buries the axe into her chest. That would have been hilarious. In the book summary I read, it says Danny only unleashes one ghost to help take down Rose, which is much better than cheesily dumping out all the spooks and spirits. Dr. Sleep is a silly movie. I enjoyed it quite a bit, but in a movie where a bunch of characters have crazy psychic powers, why is there a scene where Danny and Billy have a crazy shootout with the true knot? What the hell? That whole shootout sequence felt so out of place and ridiculous. I know that parts of The Shining have to pop back up since this is a sequel. Danny keeps seeing the naked grandma in different bathtubs. He learns that he can trap ghosts in mine boxes, so there's a scene where he, as young Danny, confidently walks to the bathroom, sees the bare naked G-Ma, enters the bathroom and closes the door behind him with a smile. Whoa. Danny, you're a young boy at this point in the movie. You better not be banging that old lady. Anyone who has seen the movie back me up. It really seemed like that's what was about to happen. What's even funnier is when Abra does the same exact thing with the old lady ghost at the end of the movie. There's no way that scene doesn't read as comedic. Dr. Sleep is directed by Mike Flanagan. He recently directed Gerald's Game and The Haunting of Hill House. He also directed Oculus, which I need to check out again, since I had one too many drinks during my first viewing. Anyway, Flanagan included some actors from those other things he's directed. One of the actors he brought on for Dr. Sleep is Henry Thomas. He played the younger version of the dad in The Haunting of Hill House. 
Henry Thomas plays Jack Torrance in Doctor Sleep and doesn't work at all, not even a little bit. He barely has the same hair. I know that you want to cast your pals when you can, but why would you cast Henry Thomas as Jack Torrance when Jack Nicholson's clone is the perfect age to play the character? Oh, you didn't know that Jack Nicholson was successfully cloned back in 1969? I bet the clone's name will ring a bell. They didn't want to just call the clone Jack Nicholson 2 since that would have been completely ridiculous. So they named the clone Christian Slater. Christian Slater would have been so perfect as Jack Torrance that I'm mad he wasn't in the movie. I just rewatched Heathers and during that entire movie, Christian Slater is just impersonating Jack Nicholson. Slater has the mannerisms, voice, and animated face. I'm so bummed we got Henry Thomas instead. How was the Shelley Duvall replacement? Alex Esso plays Wendy and doesn't feel like Shelley Duvall Wendy at all. One thing I hated in Doctor Sleep was the decision to recreate iconic scenes with Henry Thomas and Alex Esso instead of using the old footage remastered or leaving out the flashbacks to iconic scenes entirely. It's not like the iconic scene flashbacks are relevant to the new story in any way. They feel like they're just thrown in there to say, Remember The Shining? Danny is a recovering alcoholic and after Billy, his best friend in the world, kills himself because a True Not member makes him, Abra's dad is murdered, and Abra is kidnapped, Danny ends up with a bottle of booze. I thought he was going to give in to temptation and ruin his eight years of sobriety, which would then end with him transporting himself to the Overlook Hotel. I haven't fully fleshed out this idea, but I think it would have been much more interesting if Danny ended up facing the Overlook Hotel after relapsing instead of the Overlook Hotel ending up being the proverbial rooftop for the big showdown. One amazing sequence in Doctor Sleep is when Rose the Hat Astral projects to try and find Abra. It's incredible. More on that in a second. Danny should have downed the whole bottle and ended up involuntarily, or purposefully, astral projecting to the Overlook Hotel to face his demons and his father. I think that would have been such an interesting way to include the Overlook Hotel while making it feel less forced. Back to the astral projection that's shown. Rose the Hat basically flies to where Abra is. Flies is the wrong word. Floats? It's visually stunning. When she finds Abra, Abra has set a trap. In Doctor Sleep, characters enter each other's minds. One cool thing about this is that everybody has a different environment for their minds. Abra makes one that looks like her own room with a bunch of filing cabinets that house her memories to trap Rose. Rose's is a big cathedral filled with information, and what we see of Danny's is that it's the Overlook hedge maze filled with giant tin boxes. The idea of everyone having their own intricate headspace is awesome. A video game called Psychonauts is based on people's different mind zones. Has Stephen King ever played Psychonauts? Has he ever heard of it? I'm not even sure if these head zones are in the Doctor Sleep book, so maybe Flanagan is a big Psychonauts fan. Anyway, the headspace thing is definitely a coincidence and not a stolen idea. I'm 
sure a similar idea pops up all over the place. I'm rambling a bit. Basically, there are just a bunch of cool ideas around characters that have the ability to shine, which I wish we got to see more of instead of dumb, out-of-nowhere gunfights in the woods. How's the acting from the people who aren't pretending to be other actors? Pretty good. I really like Ewan McGregor as grown-up Danny. Rebecca Ferguson is amazing as Rose the Hat. She definitely stole the show. Kylie Curran does well enough as Abra. I also really liked Zahn McLarnan as Crow Daddy and Cliff Curtis as Billy Freeman. Oh, I almost forgot to mention Carl Lumbly did a great job as the old head chef Dick. I believed he was actually that same character from The Shining, unlike Henry Thomas and Alex Esso. I haven't touched on the gore, it's meh. The way that the members of the True Not Die just looks like crappy CGI garbage. They kind of shrivel up, then turn into dust. I think their deaths could have been awesome if more time was spent crafting them. The little bits of blood aren't all that stellar. And Dr. Sleep, the True Not, capture people's steam in these weird sci-fi looking canisters. They didn't really fit the rest of the movie's more fantasy feel. I wish the canisters had been old-fashioned urns instead. While watching the movie in the theater, a creepy old man started walking slowly back and forth in front of me multiple times. I thought he was some weird plant from the theater to try and set a spooky overlook atmosphere like he was supposed to be a ghost or something. That old man really took me out of the movie. Cat thinks he was just a regular grandpa that had to go to the bathroom a lot, which yeah, it's probably the case. Fun fact, anime is now canon in the cinematic Shining universe. Abra's room is littered with anime. Dr. Sleep is not a perfect movie. It isn't going to end up a classic like The Shining. People are probably going to completely forget about it within a year. That being said, I was still roughly entertained by Dr. Sleep. Well, barring the incredibly boring and pointless return to the Overlook Hotel. Besides that, Dr. Sleep is packed with a bunch of interesting ideas that are neat, even though most of them are painfully underdeveloped. Even though it's not a glowing recommendation, I still recommend checking out Dr. Sleep. Number 5, One Cut of the Dead, 2017, directed by Shin Ichiro Yuda. This movie will be a lot more fun if you go in not knowing what it actually is. So, ah, here's a spoiler warning from ye favorite member of the podcast. Skip to 35 minutes, 54 seconds to avoid the juicy spoilers. <sighs> Thanks for that spoiler beard. Let's jump into the summary. A crew is making a zombie movie. Upset with the acting in his zombie movie, the director does a spell that makes one of the crew into an actual zombie. People start dying and coming back to life. The star of the fake zombie movie, Chinatsu, looks like she's been bitten. So the makeup artist says they need to cut off the chomped limb. Ko, the actor playing the zombie in the fake movie, wrestles with the makeup artist and kills her. Chinatsu runs away from Ko, who becomes a zombie. 
Chinatsu eventually puts code down, then kills the director for causing everything. The director, Ko, and zombies are the killers. The director cast the zombie spell knowing it would result in death. I thought about putting Chinatsu on the list, but if she didn't kill the director, there was a good chance he'd try to get her killed again. Why'd you give us a spoiler warning for such a generic sounding zombie movie? Well folks, that summary is just 30 minutes of the movie. The actual meat of the film is about the film crew taking on a live action 30 minute one cut zombie movie and all the troubles they experience during the take. When you watch the original 30 minute zombie movie, you'll no doubt think to yourself, why the hell is this happening? Why are the characters randomly asking the makeup artist about her hobbies? Why did one of the characters cut off the exposition dump that was about to explain what's going on? There are a lot of weird decisions in the 30 minute movie which are all explained when you get to see what happened behind the scenes. Seeing the reasons for the screw-ups and improvisations is hilarious and entertaining. One of the funniest bits in the entire movie is probably when one of the actors gets diarrhea and ends up having to have his zombie makeup applied while he's popping a squat, letting it all out, and crying. I'm having a hard time thinking about what to say about One Cut of the Dead, since it's such a unique movie. It's basically a jank horror short, then a movie about the behind the scenes that reveal what made parts of the short jank. It's such a cool viewing experience and idea. The zombie short being all one shot is amazing. So much planning had to go into it. People are running around and the camera follows them all over the place. The gore in this is incredible. It's all done during the one shot which blows my mind. Actors are seamlessly replaced with dummies and decapitated heads. Blood is splattered and sprayed with precision. It's impressive. I can't think of any other one-shot horror movies that have practical gore included all over the place with zero editing. It's amazing. The coordination. Holy moly. I was in a four-minute short that was mostly one-shot. There wasn't any gore or anything, and that still took us a whole day of shooting to get, partially because I was supposed to swing a tire iron at someone, and we only had a real one, and I didn't want to hurt anyone or smash a hanging lamp that was in the danger zone, but still. Even in the final cut, you can see me hold the swing back. I'm still mad at myself for not selling that swing. That short had nothing on the sheer level of coordination it took to complete One Cut of the Dead. The acting in One Cut of the Dead is fine. I didn't love the score, but it didn't take away from the rest of the movie. I do think the transition from the 30 minute short to the behind the scenes part of the movie is a little weird and could have been more streamlined, but that's my biggest gripe, which is teensy tiny. Definitely check out One Cut of the Dead. I hope you saw it before listening to this section, but if you didn't, it might help to go in not expecting your average zombie movie, since this is less about the zombies and more about the shenanigans that happen while making a movie. I went in wanting a dumb zombity, and instead got feels. Fun facts about One Cut of the Dead, it cost $25,000 to make and was shot in 8 days. It made over 30 
million dollars worldwide. Hot dog that profit. Number six, Mirrors, 2008, directed by Alex Aja. Keeper Sutherland takes a job as a night security guard at an old fire-damaged department store. Kiefer realizes that the mirrors in the store are malevolent. The mirrors want Kiefer to find someone named Essaker. The mirrors kill his sister and threaten to continue killing people he loves. Kiefer finds Essaker, who used to be a little possessed girl, until a doctor who thought she just had schizophrenia used a new mirror therapy that ended up trapping the demons in mirrors. Essaker, now a nun, is kidnapped at gunpoint by Kiefer, our protagonist, who takes her back to the department store, which used to be the asylum she was treated at. The demons possess her again, and Kiefer battles the possessed mere demon nun. The department store starts to collapse on top of Kiefer and the nun. Kiefer makes it out of the department store, but realizes that no one can see him, and everything is backwards because he's in the mirror world now. Oh my god! The mirror demons and Kiefer Sutherland are the killers. Kiefer forced the nun to get possessed again, which kills her. She was an innocent person that happened to be possessed at one point. Mirrors was the last Alex Aja horror movie I hadn't seen. I saw that there was an unrated version of the movie. I could rent the theatrical release for cheap, but to watch the unrated version, I had to pay $15. I'm glad I did. Mirrors is the best movie I have ever seen in my entire life. Kiefer Sutherland doing a fantastic Nick Cage impersonation. Check. Kiefer randomly reacting to any situation by yelling obscenities. Check. Random plot about demon possession shoehorned in at the very last second. Check. Kiefer kidnapping a nun at gunpoint. Check. Exploding nuns. Double check. Was the unrated version worth it? I looked up the differences afterwards and turns out one of the funniest moments in the movie wouldn't have been as great in the standard version. I basically paid $15 for more blood during the nun explosion and I have zero buyer's remorse. That's the only scene that's all that different really, but the additional blood in the unrated version makes the nun explosion really pop and truly hysterical. The dialogue in Mirrors is terrible. I think that makes sense since it was written by two guys whose native language is French. The lines are cliche and robotic, which honestly helps the so-bad-it's-good nature of Mirrors. Aja is known for his gore, so how is it? Pretty meh, actually. There's a lot of crappy CGI used. Come to think of it, there are only three kills. If you count the nun exploding after being possessed to kill, you can either see the bloody mirror nun explosion as the nun dying or her transformation into her final form. Besides the blood explosion, you have a throat slash, which looks stupid and didn't do anything for me. You see, if the evil mirror version of someone does something, it happens to the real person. A dude's evil mirror version slits its throat, which kills the guy. The most interesting gore, which looks good in some shots and downright cartoonish in others, 
comes from Kiefer's sister's death. Evil mirror version of her rips its own jaw off, which in return makes her jaw rip off in real life. It's a jaw-dropping kill. The detective should have walked in the crime scene and said, Why the long face? Some of the jaw rip is uh, genuinely disturbing, but for the most part, it comes off as way too goofy. It gave me Floops Fluglies vibes. You know, those horrible abominations from the first Spy Kids movie that I think I keep bringing up. I did appreciate the parts of the gore that were done practically. A lot of terrible CGI is included in mirrors. One garbage effect is used a few times to make mirrors shimmer, which is completely unnecessary. The shimmers don't add anything. The acting from everyone is completely awful, which only heightens the comedy. Paula Patton plays Keeper's wife, and she's definitely the worst adult actor in the movie. I appreciate how over-the-top Kiefer Sutherland's performance is. I loved Kiefer's outbursts in the movie. They made me laugh out loud on multiple occasions. The production design for the department store is creepy and cool. Sometimes they overdid it with the grime, but for the most part, I really dug the look of the store. I definitely recommend checking out Mirrors if you're in the mood for an almost two-hour, so-bad-it's-good, Kieferless Souther Cage Mirror Demon Goof Fest. I will definitely be checking out the sequel that sounds like it's the exact same movie but straight to DVD. Ren Stevens is in it. I might also check out Into the Mirror, which is the Korean movie Mirrors was based on. Aja changed up the story a ton, so I'm assuming the original is way less stupid. One other thing to note, the editor for Mirrors is named Baxter. Just Baxter. So I'm pretty sure the editor for this movie was literally a dog. Because you know there's no humans named Just Baxter. Number 7. Castle Rock. Ramble Talk. Castle Rock Season 2 isn't over yet, but I thought I'd talk about it anyways. This won't be spoilery or long. If you have been following this new season at all, you know that Lizzie Kaplan is playing Annie Wilkes. Yes, the Annie Wilkes from Misery. I believe she's playing a new interpretation of the character that isn't canonical with Misery. I'm 99.9% .9 sure nothing in Castle Rock is canonical with anything outside of it. Anyway, Lizzie Kaplan is doing an amazing job as Annie Wilkes. She's got the mannerisms and line delivery down. She's the main reason you should check this show out. Now, I actually have fallen behind on the show. Why? Well, there was a recent episode that shows young Annie Wilkes growing up. It shows what caused her to become the character we know and love. Problem is, it doesn't actually make any sense that young Annie ends up being the current day Annie Wilkes. It's like they are completely different people. I've seen a lot of praise for the young Annie Wilkes episode and it's actually soured the rest of the show for me. It's impossible for me to believe that young Annie and older Annie are the same person. To explain why the two characters are being completely different, I could put a band-aid on it and say Annie's mental health issues made her into a completely different person, but that feels disingenuous to the character. The whole young Annie thing feels disingenuous 
to the character. I don't need to know her full backstory. Sure, the Young Annie episode reveals a lot about the plot, but I think what the episode reveals could have been showcased in a different manner. Besides Lizzie Kaplan, Tim Robbins is also in the new season of Castle Rock. No, he's not playing Andy from Shawshank Redemption. He's a completely new character who adopted some Somalian refugees. There's a reveal regarding his past that you'll see coming from miles away. In Castle Rock Season 2, you have the Annie Wilkes stuff that, barring young Annie, has been really interesting and entertaining. And you have Tim Robbins dealing with his family, which is much less compelling. You also have some weirdness regarding Salem's Lot, but I won't spoil the little there is to currently spoil about that. Like the first season, the second season is already losing steam. Instead of being excited to catch the new episode, ASAP, I've been putting it off and watching the old Disney Channel show Even Stevens instead. I guess that's the easiest way for me to sum up my current feelings towards Castle Rock Season 2. I'd rather watch old episodes of Even Stevens. I'm still going to finish the season and think it's worth watching. I just wish the Tim Robbins stuff was more interesting and that the young Annie that's presented felt like a character that could turn into the old Annie I've been hanging out with for the entire first half of the season. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer, 58, Sexy Death, Bloody Red Rum, and Demon Mirrors. I'm glad to have finally seen The Shining in full. Now there's only a few other movies I need to see to lose my status as a horror fraud. One being Rosemary's Baby. I'll watch that when I'm in the mood. I have to watch garbage like Mirrors 2 first. Thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast, allowing it to assault your eardrums. I'll be back on December 1st. I currently have 7 reviews on iTunes. If I have 10 by the next episode, I'll sing Britney Spears' Every Time through the first chorus at the end of episode 59. I'm making this promise because I know that no one makes it this far into the podcast. Till next time, remember that anything you see your reflection in is a mirror. Even someone else's eyes. Oh my god! I hope Red Letter Media doesn't send me a DMCA takedown request for this episode.